Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, Mark Simbrowski likes to run. And I remember crawling up the stairs and I told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to go lay in bed. Just check on me, okay? So I crawled up the stairs, went to bed and trying to just sleep. And I do remember the bed just shaking. But sarcoidosis is making his heart race unnecessarily. Everything seemed okay. And then all of a sudden they came up to my room and said, we have to take you in for an emergency procedure. I said, well, what's that? You know, can I call my wife? Like, what's going on? I had no clue. Mark has cardiac sarcoidosis, and he's been dealing with it since 2017. You know, all of that just weighs on you. And, I, you know, I'm having children. And I, it, it took me to a dark place. And thankfully, my wife pushed me to, you know, see a psychiatrist and help myself. And um, I would recommend that to anybody going through these battles. It's, it's really, really helpful. Mark's story is coming up. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello, this is episode 107 of the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. I do this podcast to help you understand what's going on with you and to give you a sense of hope as you deal with this unpredictable disease to sort of just make it more of a, I don't want it to be an everyday kind of thing, but the more we normalize it, the more we can understand it, accept it, talk about it, see how it's affecting other people, see what medical professionals are doing, and just to just to give you an environment where you have information and anecdotal stories from other SART fighters that that help you just kind of understand what it is that, that you are dealing with with your case of sarcoidosis. Or if you're a researcher or a caregiver or a physician, um, I think it's valuable to hear what people are saying about sarcoidosis from other perspectives. So today we will be hearing Mark Simbrowski of Chicago tell his story. He'll talk about how he is dealing with sarcoidosis, his long search for diagnosis, his battle to come back. And in particular, you know, here's a healthy guy, athletic, uh, very athletic, marathon runner, um, and all of a sudden his heart just starts racing and there's no explanation for it. Um, and so he's going to tell the story of how he dealt with this on numerous occasions. Is his heart rate going up into the 200s when normal for him should be, you know, around 50, a resting heart rate at lunch. So uh, we're going to hear him talk about that. My talk with Mark is coming up here in just a few minutes. On the personal side, I can tell you I'm feeling pretty good these days. Uh, however, my attempt at the Atkins diet is testing my resolve, shall I say, and I'm pretty much able to tell you that I've blown it. <laughs> I, I'm not doing very well with it. Uh, I, I am down a few pounds from the weight that I gained on a, a Disney cruise that I told you about that happened back in January. Uh, but bread and cookies have somehow wormed their way 
back into my diet, um, even the occasional French fry. So the things that I know that I need to say no to, I'm not doing that very much, and I'm just going to fess up and, and admit it. I am still trying to do that paleo diet, that caveman diet, whenever I can, but it's hard. Uh, paleo is like uh, going back to the cavemen. So uh, the theory is, is just eat whatever a caveman could have found because that's what our bodies are supposedly the most uh, adjusted to and able to deal with. So there was no agriculture back then. So think uh, meat and think of a, you know, a hunter gatherer. So if you could find an apple on the tree, okay, you could eat that. If you could find berries and nuts, yeah, you can eat those. Uh, but um, it's, uh, you know, so basically meat and greens is the diet, the, what, the way I look at it. But it's just, it's not easy to do that. Anyway, uh, on the good, uh, some good news. The weather is breaking a bit here in Virginia. It's breaking early uh, as I'm recording this. It is February 26th, and the temperatures today are going to be up around 60 degrees, uh, which is, you know, that's not normal. Um, it's kind of welcome, but, <laughs> but it's not normal. Uh, I did get outside for a bike ride yesterday. It was chillier yesterday. Highs only around 50, high 40s, 50. Um, so it was chilly, but, you know, for February, I'll take it. Uh, I can tell you that, wow, my legs have just lost it. I was riding so well uh, at the end of last season, which for me is, eh, give or take, uh, late October, early November. And then I, I sort of park the bike and I, I start working out inside the YMCA or on the Peloton. And um, man, so just just in the few months since November, um, I, I, I because what I do is I ride, I tend to ride the same route all the time. So for a given amount of effort, you know, how I feel, uh, I can look down and know that what my speed should be, and I know what's good and I know what's bad. And I can just tell you that yesterday it was bad. In fact, it was very bad. <laughs> so I've got some work to do. Uh, uh, also, though, I can tell you that my grand twins, Nick and Nate, had their fourth birthday. It was so great to be there uh, and just, uh, you know, and of course there was cake and I ate some and ice cream and I ate some, but that's not the point. That, that's in my. I'm going back to feeling bad about my diet, but it was great to be there for the cake and ice cream to see them open the presents and all that sort of thing. And I have to tell you that, that my wife and I got them one of those Power Wheels Jeeps. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's this battery operated vehicle that you sit in and you can actually drive. And I think it goes like two and a half miles an hour. And there's a setting where you can change it to make it go up to five miles an hour, which we did not do. Um, and we found one at Target that we could pick up, and it was the it was the last one they had in stock. And my wife and I ran over and got it, and the it's unassembled. And, you know, so I saw the box. It's a huge box, and I thought, all right, probably all I have to do is put the wheels on it, and you know, maybe the roll bar or something like that. No, no, uh, you you have to assemble every little piece of this thing. Uh, the wiring was done, uh, but that was that was it. So the roll bar, the seats, the steering wheel, the bumpers, the uh, all kinds of little bits. 
all had to be assembled. And so I had taken it apart on Friday morning with the hope of giving it to them Friday night. And uh, then my wife came home from work because I called and said, there's no way I'm going to get this done before I go to work, which is for me is at 2.30 in the afternoon. And so she came home and she said, well, I'll get it done. And she worked on it and no. (laughs) So Saturday morning we finished and then uh, the day got busy. And so Sunday and the weather was bad. So Sunday morning, we uh, Sunday afternoon, we took it over to the twins and they got in it immediately started driving it around the backyard and loved it. And it was it was great to be there for that, to see that and to you know be able to participate and run around behind them and and uh, you know, by which I mean uh, walking fast. Uh, but you know getting video on the on the cell phone and, and you know just having you know, being there for the moment. so so that that was a nice little family development and like I say, you know, the uh, the uh, tagline for this is keep fighting, right? And uh, for the podcast. And for me, that means keep fighting to do the things that I love to do and keep fighting to be there and keep fighting to keep sarcoidosis at bay uh, in my own life. And then, of course, with the podcast and in the lives of others as well. So uh, before we get to Mark's interview today, I just want to give you a couple of sarcoidosis-related updates on the on the world front. First of all, FSR held the first patient advisory committee meeting of the year. A lot of exciting stuff in the pipeline for 2024. I'm not really at liberty to talk about things yet, other than to say that I know that there is another gala coming this year. If you remember last year, there was a big one in Washington, D.C., and there will also be another summit, uh, the dates and topics still to be determined. But they are coming. Uh, Also, I can tell you that Sarcoidosis Awareness Month is in April, as it always is, and Sarcoidosis Awareness Day is April 13th. And the theme for the month this year from FSR is Say Sarcoidosis. Yeah, in other words, just say sarcoidosis. The more people who hear the word, the more the world will be aware of the disease, the easier it will be to tell the sarcoidosis story. It's a hard word to pronounce. It's a it's something people haven't heard of, and we want to change that, right? So say sarcoidosis is the theme for Sarcoidosis Awareness Month this month, uh, this year in April. And so I got to say, that's kind of what we do here on the Sark Fighter podcast, right? We say sarcoidosis a lot. Speaking of that, um, Sarcoidosis News is reporting a new finding from a study in Denmark. Uh, it's uh, basically saying that people with Sark are more likely to develop venous thromboembolism, VTE. Uh, and I want to tell you a little bit more about this. It's reported by Andra Lobo, Ph.D., and the study was published in a medical journal called CHEST. And let me tell you the findings of that study. So here's a quote from the study. It says, Our findings highlight the importance of increased awareness among physicians of VTE among patients with sarcoidosis. The study, which was called Long-Term Risk of Venous Thromboembolism and Sarcoidosis, a nationwide cohort study published in CHEST, also highlights the importance of preventing these events in high-risk patients such as those with sarcoidosis. 
Then it goes on and it describes what sarcoidosis is, an inflammatory disease that leads to small clumps of immune cells called granulomas, which uh, you probably know by now, um, in uh, various tissues and organs, often the lungs and the lymph nodes, and, and affecting their function. Uh, and it says that chronic inflammation can be considered a risk factor for VTE by raising the probability that blood clots will form. Well, VTE, and now I'm reading again from the uh, report, VTE includes deep venous thrombosis when the blood clot forms in a deep vein commonly in the legs and pulmonary embolism, a potentially life-threatening complication of deep venous thrombosis that occurs when a clot detaches and travels to the lungs. However, and this is a quote, unlike other inflammatory diseases, including lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, Data on the risk of VTE and sarcoidosis are sparse, the researchers said. So data on the characteristics, treatment, and prognosis of patients with sarcoidosis developing VTE are also lacking. But they went on to do a, a study that included more than 14,000 adults with sarcoidosis and no history of VTE. And they were included and matched with almost 60,000 people from the general population. Um, and and th there's a lot, of, a lot of data in here that is all related to the qualitative and quantitative versions of the study. But the bottom line is sarcoidosis patients who developed VTE also had a higher prevalence of heart failure, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and liver disease, and they did have a lower prevalence of peripheral artery disease, a circulatory problem in which narrowed arteries reduced blood flow to the limbs. So despite substantial differences in clinical characteristics between VTE patients with and without sarcoidosis, the three-month mortality rate between the two groups was similar. Nevertheless, the three-month mortality of about 10% following VTE underlies the importance of preventing these events, especially in patients at a high risk of VTE, which may now also include individuals with sarcoidosis. And so I think the bottom line, the takeaway from this, is, is that um, if you have sarcoidosis, you are more likely to develop VTE and that that's something that doctors should be on the lookout for. And if I were to say any more than that, I would totally be out of my depth with respect to uh, the clinical side of all of this. So I'm going to leave it at that, but I will put a link in the show notes. Uh, and for those of you who are more clinically inclined than I am, if you want to take a deep dive into it or you want to print it out, take it to your doctor and say, hey, I, I, I saw this, I heard about it on the Sark Fighter podcast, and I just want to make sure that, uh, that you're aware of this study and, you know, and, and to tell me if I'm uh, a candidate or if there's a reason for concern or, uh, or if there might be down the road. So there it is. All right. Um, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter podcast. I uh, want to uh, appreciate you being here. I also want to ask you to help me reach out to more people so FSR can be as effective as possible uh, with the podcast, and it helps me reach more people and grow the show. If you share it on your social media, share it with your friends, 
You'll get a link whenever there's a podcast and just ask other people to subscribe to the podcast and and let's hear more people say sarcoidosis. All right, coming up, Mark will be sharing his sarcoidosis story. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. Joining me now is fellow Sark Fighter Mark Zembrowski. Mark, uh, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on this morning. Appreciate it. So you uh, are feeling pretty good these days, but tell us a little bit about your history with cardiac sarcoidosis. Sure. Um, I was first diagnosed back in 2018 with cardiac sarcoidosis. Um, it's an interesting story how I got there, and that's really what I want to talk about. Um, I had been an avid runner my whole life, having run seven marathons, and continued that you know to this day. But I, back in 2017, I was actually in my own house and running on a treadmill, and after about five minutes of warming up, something kind of clicked that I just felt really odd. And I remember crawling up the stairs and I told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to go lay in bed. Just check on me. Okay. So I crawled up the stairs, went to bed and trying to just sleep. And I do remember the bed just shaking huh. and I couldn't figure out like, why is the bed shaking? You know, I'm not in an earthquake zone. I'm not in California. And I just kept pushing through and just trying to fall asleep. And I couldn't. And I, was maybe slightly out of breath and the bed was, like I said, vigorously shaking. So I have a, you know, like a blood pressure cough. So I went and like, well, maybe my blood pressure is out of whack. I went down, I put the blood pressure cuff on. Blood pressure was normal, but then I saw like a flashing light and it was for an elevated heart rate. Hmm. So it said 220. So I was having an SVT. So I'd been at 220 probably for about three hours. And I decided I live about two blocks from a hospital. So I told my wife, like, I'm going to go get checked out. Something doesn't feel right. So I actually drove, drove myself to the hospital, which was dumb. Don't ever do this. Mm -hmm. I drove myself there and went in the emergency room and then, you know, they, they admitted me, they put the, um, they did an EKG and they tested my heart rate and they're like, oh yes, you're having an SVT. So there's a couple of procedures they can do. You know, the first procedure they try to do is, I think it's called a vagal procedure, uh-huh. where they put you on the hospital bed and they tip your toes to the air and you blow into a tube. And I guess if you do that the proper way, it puts pressure on the vagal nerve, if I get this correct, and that sometimes can reset your heart. So they're like, we're going to try this. So they did it once. My heart was still racing. Um, so let's do it again. So I did it again. Thankfully, it reset. Because they said if that didn't work, then they were going to inject me and stop my heart mm. to reset it. So then um, 
the the ER doctor comes in and says, you know, you might have some heart damage. You've been at this heart rate for too long. You know, we see the there's some proteins or something that are emitted during a heart attack. So they didn't know what was wrong with me. They I just had an elevated heart rate called an SVT. So they kept me overnight. They ran every test. Um, I did like a stress test where you go onto a treadmill. I'm sure some people have had this in their life just to test out their heart. Everything seemed okay. And then all of a sudden they came up to my room and said, we have to take you in for an emergency procedure. I said, well, what's that? You know, can I call my wife? Like, what's going on? I had no clue. And they wanted to give me an angiogram. Huh. Maybe I had blockage. They saw something on this um, stress test that they thought could be blockage. So they're like, well, maybe you're having a heart attack because of blockage. And that's why your heart rate's elevated. Like a Widowmaker type situation where, you know, a, 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 an arterial blockage. Correct. Just yeah. from either poor eating or family history, whatever. Sure. Yeah. So I'm like, I guess, you know, I got to do it. So they wheel me up. And I don't know if you've ever had an angiogram, but you're you're in like the twilight mode, so you're semi-conscious. And I remember then they go up your wrist and they put a camera up. And I remember looking at the screen with the cardiologist and he's like, there's the four, um, I think they're called ventricles. And they're all clear. He's like, clear, 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 no blockage. So they put me back to the room. And then I think the next day they came in and they said, we just think it's due to age. Sometimes you get these, they call them SVTs due to age. And they sent me home. So then I go home. I'm like, I guess I'm okay. I mean, they, I don't have any blockage. They don't see anything wrong. Um, and I continued my life. And that was, I think, in June of 2017 was my first one. Then I was actually at a golf outing in Wisconsin in October. And I just felt awful. And I went into another SVT. So I got myself to the emergency room and they had to reset my heart again. Again, they didn't know why. They just reset me and sent me home. Fast forward to March of 2018, it happened again. Mm. And this time, my wife was really generous and bought me one of the Apple watches where you can track your heart rate. Yes. And I had had the Apple watch. And I was actually out with some customers. It was a, a company event. And we were just at a restaurant and having some dinner and drinks. And all of a sudden, it just felt like the lights went out. I'm like, something's really wrong. And I look at my heart rate monitor, and it was like 220. So again, I get back in a cab, and I go to the, the ER. And I walk in, and I told the guy, I said, my heart rate's at 220. And he laughed at me. He goes, you can't be. I said, look at my watch. And he didn't believe it. He takes me in the back of the ER, plugs me in, and he's like, yep, it's 221. So it happened a third time. Again, they reset it. Still, they have no idea what's wrong with me. And I want to. I want. I just want to. Just for people who are listening, because as a fellow endurance athlete, when you're a runner and you're in shape, your resting heart rate is probably. If you're sitting there having lunch, it's probably between fifty and sixty. That's where right? mine is. Yeah, that's where mine is. So, yep. so. For it to be way the heck up in the 200s, something's way off. Way off. Right. So this is three times now in the span of less than a year with no answers. I mean, everybody's uh -huh. looking at me like everything else, my blood tests are good. You know, the cardiologist thinks I'm fine. And then just by chance. So I, I spent a lot of time in the sun as a child and I 
got a lot of skin damage from, you know, I, I don't know that I'm 48 now, you know, back in the eighties was sunscreen really used as much as it is now. Right. I burnt myself a lot and I got a lot of, of, um, you know, skin damage, freckles. And my right. wife always is bothering me. You know, you have four kids, make sure you go get tested. So I went to my dermatologist like I did at her, you know, request. And my kids had noticed something in my back. Like it looked like a mole. Um, so did my wife. They're like, why don't you have that? Yeah. Right. Well, shit, sure. I'm going to the dermatologist next week. It was like, that was July of 2018, I think. So I go into there and I, I see my, my dermatologist. He checks me out like he always does. He's like, you're totally fine. I said, do me a favor. Can you look at these couple bumps? You know, I can't see them, but my wife and kids are concerned. And he looks at him and he goes, you're fine. It's not melanoma. It's nothing I, I know of that's dangerous. I said, do me a favor. Cut him off and have him biopsy. He goes, are you sure? You know, I said, I'm a 42-year-old man. I, it's on my back. I'm not a model. I don't really care. Just cut him off and have him tested. So he does it. He's like, I'll call you in a week with the results. And a week went by, no phone call. Three weeks went by, and he calls me. And I'm actually driving for work. And he says, are you sitting down? I said, well, I'm driving. He goes, can you pull over? So I pull over. I'll never forget this day. And that's what he tells me. He goes, you have sarcoidosis. He goes, we had to send it to all these different independent labs to figure out what it was. Hmm. He's like, you got to do yourself a favor. You got to go get a PET scan. You got to get all these, you know, scans done to, to determine where it is in your body. Because it could be anywhere. Like, like, like you said, it could be on your skin, which I had it on my skin. Um, they determined it was in my lungs a little bit and mostly on my heart and some on my spleen. So it was kind of sporadic throughout my body. But if I didn't push that dermatologist to test it, I think my heart would have been too far gone. They said in about another month that I probably wouldn't have lived. Wow. Because wow. it was so encrusted with the sarcoids. Um, so once Gran they, granulomas, right? Yeah. Granul yeah, whatever yeah, they call right. it. Right. Well, yeah, that's what they call it. Yeah. Non non casein granuloma. That's never thought that would be a regular part of my vocabulary, it's, but it is. It's yeah. crazy. And, and yeah. You got to be an advocate for yourself. That's why I want people to hear, you know, even if you don't think it's something, make doctors test it. Um, you know, I know they specialize in their fields, but sometimes you got to make them run into a lab and see what they find. Um, yeah. So I'm very forever thankful for my family for, for making me do that. Well, and, and good for you, because I've had doctors tell me the same thing, especially like with some skin stuff um, that, you know, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. And. I've pushed and had them take the stuff off and, and, and it's actually never turned out to be sarcoidosis, but they, yeah. they just have, have a tendency to not want to bother with it, you know? Right. And, well, he, he was confident it wasn't anything. And yes, it wasn't a cancer or anything to deal with the skin, but it did affect me in other ways. Sure. And, you know, so they immediately sent me to a cardiologist, obviously, and a, and a rheumatologist. And when I called my cardiologist and told me I had sarcoidosis, like, you know, all the bells went off. They connected it. That's what uh -huh. you have. You have cardiac uh -huh. sarcoidosis. That's why your heart is having all these arrhythmias. Right. Your heart swells, I guess. And then the electrical pathways get funky. Like it doesn't go in the normal order. It'll short circuit because the, the swelling causes it to short circuit. So he, you know, he, he brings me in and he's like, you know, this is very, very severe. You know, it's a two to five year typical 
outcome. Most people don't make it past five. You know, he's like, we hope we caught it early enough, but we don't know. So they, they had tested my heart. Um, and my fraction rate was like 40, which is borderline non-functioning. It's very low. Huh. So that's why I was super tired all the time. I was getting dizzy. You know, it was, it was very scary. So then I went to a rheumatologist and they put me on some medications to suppress the swelling, like a prednisone and a anti-rejection drug to keep my body from trying to kill itself. And those two drugs took years, but was that Imuran azathioprine? I was on Imuran. I'm Imuran. still, yep. So they put me on a high dose of Imuran and prednisone. Prednisone was the short term thing just to get my heart to shrink because it was so swollen. Um, but the combination, combination of those two things over years really brought me back. It was a struggle for a few years. Um, they actually were so scared after my diagnosis, you know, my, my cardiologist sits me down. I think my wife was there too and says, you know, we really should put in a defibrillator because if you keep having these, these, um, arrhythmias, you could just drop and die. You know, you could be on an airplane. What are you going to do? You could be home alone and you have it. What are you going to do? And again, I, I kind of fought it. I'm like, I don't want this device on my chest. It seems annoying, but it was again, the smartest thing I ever did. I, I went and had it put in. Well, actually I take it back. They, they wanted to do an ablation to try to stop the arrhythmias. But they said when they went in to do the um, electrical mapping, this is fascinating to me, but they somehow bring you in the ER, they put you under and they electrically map all the pathways in your heart. Hmm. And that that's, so there's, I guess there's two types of cardiologists. There's the, they call them the plumbing guys and the electrical guys. So the plumbing guys are the guys that do the stents and, and clean out your arteries. And then the, the electrocardiologists figure out the electrical pathways. So they went in to do what's called an ablation. So people that have AFib out there have probably had an ablation because it stops that, that short circuit in your heart. Um, they went to do that to try to stop me from having these, these arrhythmias. But when he went in there while I was under, he, I think he went and talked to my wife and said, there's so much sarc or granules, whatever that word is. Granulomas. Yep. Granulomas on your heart. If we cut one, it'll just go somewhere else. So like we want to put in the defibrillator just to protect them. So I think it was like an eight hour procedure by the time it was all done. They, they actually, they trigger arrhythmias in your body and then paddle you back. And then they, they map that. And then that's what they would cut. But for me, they couldn't, there was too many. So they said, let's just put in a defibrillator and hope you get better from the medication. So they put the defibrillator in me, sent me home the next day. It's, it's a crazy process that goes up your leg through an artery. And it's almost like outpatient. You're there less than 24 hours. They put mm -hmm. it in, they fish wires to your heart. And it's actually, uh, you can see me. I don't think the people on the air can, but it goes up on like the top of your chest. It's like a like, size of like a little cigarette box. Um, and they put that in there. The battery lasts like 10 years. So, so they put this device in me. And then my wife and I and kids went to a farm in Virginia. I think you said you're from Virginia. I am. We were very remote. We were just outside DC in Leesburg. Mm -hmm. And um, he's got a farm. And we spent you no, know, we spent Thanksgiving there with our kids and had a great time. And I was actually going to pack to leave. Now I've had this defibrillator put in two months, maybe max. And I'm walking down the stairs to go to the car. And I just remember carrying the luggage. I got out of breath and I sat down 
And it felt like somebody hit me with a baseball bat. And I didn't, it took me a minute to figure out what happened, but the defibrillator, it shocked me. I was at 330 beats a minute. Right. 330. 330. And I guess I'm not a doctor, but I, 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 if you get some of these weird arrhythmias, I don't think CPR could save your life. I think you have to have a shock is what I've been told. So if I didn't have the device in me, I don't know that, you know, it's such a remote farm. I don't know that somebody could have got there in time to save me. Yeah, that's that's pretty. That's horse country up there. Was it a horse farm by any chance? Yeah, he's got horses and cattle and stuff. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, real pretty. But, but it's very, well, there's not, you can't find a hospital for like 30, 40 minutes or right, ER or something. Right. You're not that far from D.C., but but you're out in the country pretty good. Correct. It's great yeah. you know, for miles to get there. So, yep. so it was, you know, I, I get the shock. I go crawl back in the house and I remember calling, we called my cardiologist. He said, how many shocks did you get? Thankfully I only got one, but there's people that it'll continue to shock and shock until it corrects it. And it's very painful, but I just got one. It reset it back to normal. And then we ended up driving home the next day. And um, I went and saw my cardiologist and they, they, with this defibrillator, they can connect to it um, through your skin, through like this device. And he said, yeah, you had a, you had a ventricular tachycardia, which is the deadly one. That's the bottom, the pump of your heart, the bottom. Mm. AFib is the top. So I guess AFib won't kill you necessarily, but it can give you a stroke because your blood can clot in your heart. But when you have ventricular tachycardia in the bottom, <clears throat> it basically doesn't, it spasms and it doesn't pump any blood. Mm. So it's like for me, it was, it lasted for like 10 seconds. I was basically passed out. It shocked me back to life. Um, so it saved my life. Totally happy. <clears throat> Got home, saw my doctor, said, just continue to live, you know, keep taking your medications. And then in December of that same year, so we're fast forwarding maybe two more months, It uh, I got shocked again. I was home alone with my children. I was carrying laundry down the stairs from my basement. And I remember waking up at the bottom of the stairs. Ooh. And again, I had a 330 beat per minute ventricular tachycardia. Did you fall down the stairs? I vaguely remember I had sat down because I wasn't feeling well. And I think I just kind of slid on my butt. And I remember my head hitting the stairs as I like slid down the stairs. Um, but again, I, I woke up at the bottom of the stairs and my kids would have found me down there. It's, it's a horrible, horrible thing to think about if it would have went the other way, if it didn't save me. And, and for people out there that have defibrillators, if you get a shock, you're not allowed to drive for three months. So I was unable to drive twice for three months, which was really difficult on my family. But they're concerned that, if, you know, in a three-month window, you could have another arrhythmia. And if you're driving and this shocks you, you could, you know, crash the car, kill yourself, you know, kill anybody. So that was the last time I had a problem. And that was in, I took some notes here, December of 2018. And... Mm. After that, it just continued. I, I continued on the medication, the Imuron and prednisone. They weaned me off the prednisone in 2021. How many milligrams were you taking of prednisone? Well, initially, when they determined I had cardiac sarcoidosis, I was at 60, which is like pretty much the max I think you can give somebody. Well, I, yeah, it's close. Yeah, it's up there. I'm, it I'm, is. I'm, it's, very, it's very, very high and very, it ruins your life. Oh, you feel like the first week you feel awesome and then it's awful. And, you know, I put on a bunch of weight. I was crabby. I would cry. I was happy. 
I, you know, my poor family had to put up with it. I'm sure you've been on it, like you said, and it's miserable. It is. But it did, you know, it's a quick way to reduce inflammation and it did help. And, but they were, you know, pushing to get me off of it as fast as possible. But as you know, you have to keep reducing it by whatever. I think I went from 60 to 40 to 20 and I was on fives for like a year. And then yeah. they said, let's try it. Let's take you off of it. And it took me off and with sarcoidosis, I'm sure you do the same thing. You got to get a blood test every three months. And they check for that. Um, oh, what's the, there's a protein angiotensin. I think they check that level for me. Okay. Um, and that's an indicator of inflammation. I don't think it's an indicator of sarcoidosis, but it's an indicator of inflammation. And if it's super high, then they'll adjust my medication. But since, since December of 2018, I have not had an incident and I've continued to get better. And they've gotten me off the prednisone, like I said, about three years ago. I've been on a low dose of Imuron just to keep my immune system at check. And I'm back to running seven, eight miles a day. And I feel wonderful. That so there is hope. It, it's, and I was pretty bad for a while with my heart. It was, it was damaged, I think, and pretty low function. And I was able to come back. So it sounds like the damage was more electrical than it was um, physical. And that would maybe explain why your heart is still able to support you when you're out there pushing the miles. Correct. I mean, the, the doctor was couldn't believe my heart rate was at 220 for hours and I was able to drive myself in. He goes, do you run? I said, yes. He goes, well, you must have a strong heart because most people would be laying on the ground. Yeah, you can't. They can't sustain that. Well, once again, I, I cannot, I, everything I know is anecdotal. Okay. Because yeah. I, you know, I talk to people about sarcoidosis all the time. I, I volunteer with FSR. I'm on some of the committees. So I'm talking to the, my fellow committee members, most of whom have had either a family member or themselves have had sarcoidosis. So I talk about sarcoidosis a lot, but Mark, what I'm, what I hear a lot is people who are endurance athletes coming on they're like yeah you know i was hiking across the grand canyon when or you know i'm a cyclist or in fact i've, I've gone back and forth with a, a fellow named royce robertson who's been on the podcast a couple of times and has done some cycling fundraisers and mm -hmm. and i was a marathon runner i can't run anymore because of sark um but i'm still a cyclist and so i consider myself to be uh, you know a an avid, if uh, not very good, <laughs> recreational athlete, but I'm 63, you know, so, but I, you know, I'll go out and, and ride my bike um, up to a hundred miles, which is sure. not nothing, you know, uh, I won't do it very fast, but I can do it. Um, and, and I ride, I think I rode very close to 3000 miles last year. So um, I, I, I just don't know if, I wish somebody would do a study to see if there's a connection between people who are vigorously athletic and sarcoidosis. It's interesting. Yes. I didn't realize there's that many people. Well, and you, you had no idea when you start, when you, uh, when I approached you to come on, you know, we had, we had somebody from FSR introduce us, but it wasn't because of your marathon running. It was just because you're another SARC patient. Right. And, and, and here I am once again, talking to somebody and maybe somebody somewhere, some researcher is going to hear this and say, huh, I've been looking for a project. Maybe that's something I can look into. I don't, 
Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I would really strongly suggest to people, for me, even bigger than the physical part of this whole thing, for me was the mental. You know, I struggled with mortality after they, you know, you give you this diagnosis. And, um, you know, and after I got the diagnosis, my wife and I, obviously, we have a lot of children. We said, well, maybe we should up my my life insurance. Um, and it really hit home when the life insurance company says, eh, we're not going to insure you anymore. So you can have what you have, but we won't give you more. You know, and that that's saying that they've run the numbers and, you know, your life expectancy is not there. So that, you know, all of that just weighs on you and I, you know, and having children and I, it, it took me to a dark place and thankfully my wife pushed me to, you know, see a psychiatrist and help myself. And, um, I would recommend that to anybody going through these battles. It's, it's really, really helpful because it, it takes a toll on your family. I, I feel bad sometimes of what I, you know, put my kids and wife through. Well, I tell you, you're, you're not the first person to go on prednisone and, and, and have, issues uh, especially with your moods yeah uh, they at work they called me honest john because i would just tell i would just tell people exactly what i thought which isn't always the best thing and i and i might have even added to it a little bit you know so and i'm sorry my dog is barking in the background but so you went through that as well you were you were kind of right out there with your opinions and yeah irritability it, I don't know that that bothered my wife and kids that much. Cause I think they understood that part of it from the medication, but it's, it's the thought of it, with cardiac sarcoidosis, it's weird. It's hard to explain, but you feel good. And all of a sudden you'll climb the stairs and the lights go out. It's like an instant, you don't get enough oxygen to your brain and you just feel like you're going to pass out. You have no control. I couldn't formulate like a sentence and you go into like a self-preservation mode. Like I, I would just not care about my kids or whatever's going on around me. I'm just worried about surviving. And it just turns on a switch. It's really hard to explain to people because it's not like a long-term illness where you start to feel worse and worse. You'll be perfectly fine. And all of a sudden you feel like you're going to die in seconds. And it's, it's scary because you don't know, like the cardiologist told me, he's like, you don't know when it's going to happen. There are no triggers. Stress can trigger it, but you could be sleeping. You could be walking. You could be talking. There's no correlation. It could just happen at any time. And for the times I had it, it was mostly physical. Like twice I was lifting something or carrying something. But the other time I was just sitting with some co coworkers at a restaurant having dinner and it triggered it. So it's, there's no rhyme or reason. So it's a scary way to live where you don't know when it's going to happen or if it's going to happen. So that just weighed on me so much. And, and also like, I like to run. I like to do be physical and I was too scared to do it. And I was told not to do it, quite frankly. Like, don't, you can't push yourself that hard because that could trigger it. So I, you know, they, they told me to walk, start, you know, walking slowly. And they told me really don't push yourself. Don't, don't go back to running marathons. And I slowly worked my way into it over the last few years. And I feel like I could run a marathon right now and I'm not going to have an issue. But you have not, um, you have not run a marathon since your diagnosis. No, but I've run 10 miles at a crack. Um, so I, it's for me, I, I know I could get to a half easily. I'm getting a little older. I don't know that my body can withstand a full marathon again because I did tear an Achilles during this time too. <laughs> and that's another nightmare because once they put this device in your body, a defibrillator, when you got to get an MRI, it's a it's an act of Congress to get it. Oh, right. 
machine could set it off and then start shocking you or or it could suck it out of your body. Yeah, the because it's a magnetic thing. Right. And, yeah. the, it, you know, every time I go to an airport or go to a, a basketball game or a hockey game, the metal detectors go off and you got to deal with that. There's all these stupid little things. But but then I also had surgery. And when I when I tore my Achilles, this is all the stuff you never realize. Um, when they when they operate on you, they use they cauterize to stop the bleeding. When they cut you open, they'll cauterize a lot of the, the veins or arteries temporarily so they can work and that you don't bleed out. Well, they can't use that device because that device uses electricity um, and that could trigger your pacemaker or your defibrillator. So for me, they had to tourniquet my leg. So there's like all these weird things they have to do. Wow. And when you're having surgery and you have an implanted device, the company or person has to be there the whole time to monitor it too. So it's it, it really changed my life in some degrees. It's getting surgeries is very difficult. Um, MRIs are very difficult. Yeah. Not impossible. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you grew up uh, water skiing, jet skiing and that kind of stuff. So okay. you've always lived a real active lifestyle. I did. I, and I still love it. Um, but there were meant like my wife and kids and I would always go skiing every year. And then this happened. And obviously I just, it scared me in the beginning. And I was told not to do some of these things. And especially with the heart thing. If you're up at altitude, that's a lot more stress on your body. Your heart has to work harder. So I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable going up very high in the mountains and skiing. And then, oh boy, if I trigger it, am I going to die? Like I'm on top of a mountain, like who's going to save me? You know, it's, it's that mental game of that, even though I'd probably be okay. But again, that's where I was saying it weighs on you mentally. And I was very, it, it depressed me for a long time. And it, it really ruined me for years. Until yeah. I really thought, you know, the right psychiatric help. So right, I, right, right, psychiatric help. So you were you were seeing a counselor. Yeah, and I think it's really important. I probably should have started seeing one day one. Like, is a parallel path to recovery. You know, it's it's a physical thing, but God, there's so much emotional with it because of the mortality of it. It's it's uh, it's very scary. Uh, Ricardi. Well, I know I you uh, again. Um, many, many of the people who've been on the podcast, including myself, uh, spent some time getting some counseling and it really helped. It, it really, really helped. And I'm not the type of person who ever would have thought that he would have to go and, and talk through my problems with somebody, but it just really made a big difference. It, yeah. It's, it's been right. life changing for right. me. What do you do? What do you do for a living? Nothing super exciting. I, I sell commercial HVAC equipment, heating and cooling. Okay. So, so but commercial, so, so those are some big contracts. Yes. Yes. I, I have a mechanical engineering degree and a mechanical engineering license. Um, came out of college and then worked for a company that did mechanical construction, like a contractor, and did some of you know, larger fun projects in Chicago, like the bear stadium and some high rises and some fun stuff like that. And then I got burned out and went on the equipment side and sell equipment to contractors now. Okay. All right. Um, so you, you, when you talk about having lunch, that's, that could be a pretty high profile lunch. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Not, not the time to have your heart rate jump up to two twenty. No, not at all. But yeah. people were very understanding. <clears throat> you know, it's I didn't want to hide it because 
I was in and out of hospitals, you know, not for long terms, but, you know, a day or two. And I, I continued to work because I had to keep my mind off of it. I obviously had wife and kids that, that I wanted to take care of and make sure, you know, I still did my daily stuff. And, um, but I didn't hide it. You know, my customers were very understanding <clears throat> and, and actually quite frankly, helpful and, mm. and not, not bothering me as much as they would normally bother me. <laughs> Like they keep the stress off of me. Sure. But the interesting thing was because I talk, I, because I do sales, I talk a lot and I'm talking to a customer of mine locally in the Chicagoland area. And I, he was asking me about like, what, you know, why do you keep going to the, the hospital? And I explained what I had and he goes, hang on. I think I know a guy that has that. I said, come on, it's so ultra rare. I, there's no way. And he goes, here, call this guy. So I call the guy and he has got cardiac sarcoidosis. No way. He's 60. I think he's 65 now, but he's been like another person I've leaned on. If I felt down, like have called him, he's been a resource. Um, unfortunately, I think he's nearing the time he needs a heart transplant. His, his got pretty damaged. So they're telling him he's got, I think a few more years and he'll have to probably get a heart transplant. But um, yeah, I, I did find somebody in the Chicagoland area, honestly, that has it too. Right. Where do you get your treatment? Um, I went to, so when I, I, there's just a local hospital called Swedish Covenant Hospital, and it's part of a, a bigger group called the North Shore Group in Chicagoland. Um, they're not a specialty hospital. They're nothing out of the ordinary, but I had a great cardiac team there. I can't say enough. Everybody I've ever dealt with there has been wonderful. Um, so much that I've gone to see my wife's relatives in the hospital and that I've walked by the cardiologist and he stops and talks to me and asks questions. So they seem to really care. Nice. Um, so I, I, yeah, like I said, I didn't really seek out a sp specific institute to deal with it. I was confident that they were putting me on the right path. <clears throat> and then there's a, a local rheumatologist I got through a referral and I've been using him since the, since I figured this out and he's been wonderful too. I, again, I didn't really, pursue anything special and all the people I had have led me down the right path. Right. I'm Go talking ahead. with Mark Simbrowski, who is a fellow Sark fighter lives in Chicago. Mark, uh, uh, you were introduced to me by a, by Kathy at FSR. So have, how have you uh, come to use FSR and how did you become aware of, of the organization? Um, again, having going through this and not having much information out there, I was looking for alternate ways to find things. You know, there's a lot of medical briefings and stuff, which I don't, I can't understand. Right. Um, but I did, you know, of course there's all the social media, you know, Facebooks and Instagrams. And I was just searching Instagram. I'm like, I'll look up sarcoidosis. Why not? And I did, I found, I found their webpage or not their webpage, their, their Instagram site. Okay. And I just started following it. And I, you know, I, I see some of the stuff they're doing trying to raise money, awareness, your podcasts were, you know, shown on there. And it just intrigued me. And it was a nice way to get information easier and more simplistic that I could understand. And I've used it over the years, just, you know, to, as a reference. And I felt good enough now through my journey to say, you know, I'd like to help other people. Let me, let me tell my story. And if it can help somebody save somebody's life, I, I hope it does. Right. And, 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 and here you are, uh, sharing on the podcast publicly. So I want to thank you for that because, uh, not everybody feels comfortable 
in this HIPAA world sharing their health concerns, but I, I think it makes such a difference. It does. It's it's nice to hear other people can get through it, right? You know, it's I'm trying to give some hope. Cardiac is pretty terminal, and I'm telling you, it's not. Yeah. And I think with the right medication, and if you ca- if you don't catch it too late, obviously everything has a timeline. And they told me I was within a month of not catching it in time. Um, but I think if you catch it, there's there's a way out of it. I talked with a woman this morning who was aware of the podcast, and she just wanted to just talk off the record with me. And she's she's got some um, some spleen involvement, and she believes she may have some optic involvement now, and she's had the rash and all that, and she's she hasn't been treated for sarcoidosis, and. Mm-hmm. I told her, well, you probably want to get on that because who yes. knows where else it is. And, and, you know, sarcoidosis, sarcoidosis can cause blindness. Yes. Um, and I said, you know, you probably, you don't want to wait. I, I, everything I know is anecdotal. I, you know, I'm certainly not a physician. I just talk about sarcoidosis a lot with a lot of people. And so I've seen, I've seen different cases, but I, I told her, you know, you have sarcoidosis. She's had a biopsy. Don't, don't mess with this. Get no. going on it, you know? Especially because I think your optic nerve connects right to your brain. It could get to your brain. Yeah. Don't, don't risk right. that. And there's right. these medications do work. I mean, it's, it's, they told me it's slow moving. You got to take the medications. They don't work, you know, in the first week, maybe, but I'm telling you over six years, it's worked really well. Yeah. And there's very little side effects. I, I haven't had any issues being on the medication. After, after, after prednisone. Yeah, the, the Imuron seems to be a very, very tolerant medication. I, I also I also take Imuron. I take, um, okay. I think, 150 milligrams a day, 350 milligram pills, I want to say. I'm everything. Fit. Okay. So um, I'll have to go back and check. But I take it every day. It's three pills every day. And I've been taking yeah. it so long. I haven't. It's been a long time since I even looked at the at the number of milligrams. But um, And I have, I have zero side effects from it. Correct. Zero. That I know of. Yeah. I think there's some, I was told by my rheumatologist, long-term use can prohibit your body from fighting viruses that can cause cancer. So there is a cancer risk, I guess. Okay. And I'm not a doctor or, or, but pharmacist, but I guess you might want to look into that if you're on, on this podcast, but that's what they told me. Um, It's slight, but it's possible. Okay. All right. I, I met with my rheumatologist two days ago just to get um, checked out. And, you know, if they, there is concern that at some point your body builds up resistance to Imuron. He said, it doesn't happen to everybody, but some people, and then they have to put you into a uh, uh, infusion. So he warned me at some point it could happen, but like Remicade infusion or that sounds correct. It was started with an R. Yeah. It's probably Remicade. They do it every six months, I think. Okay. That it's very hard on your kidneys. It's like you don't, you definitely don't want to do that if you don't have to. Right. I had to stop for that reason. Uh, never had any kidney failure, but they were watching my um, blood enzyme levels, looking for markers that doctors understand. And they said, yeah, we, you've got to stop the Remicade. And that's how I wound up. I take Humira once a week now and, okay. uh, and the Imuran. So, um, and what the doctors have told me is that I'm not in remission, I'm controlled. Remission means you're not taking anything and i'm controlled as well so, so you you and i are both controlled um i think for the layperson the word remission is just fine but 
Well, I, I can tell you there was a point, I want to say two years ago, they want, my rheumatologist said, let's take you off everything. Let's see how your body, because you were doing really well. Um, those angiotensin levels were, were in the normal range. So let's take you off. So I, he took me off for about three months and then he did another blood test and then my levels went up. So he's like, you got to get back on it. Mm -hmm. And thankfully they didn't get too high. didn't do any damage. I got back on the meds and I've been on them since. Um, and I asked him again, can we try it again? He's like, why, why risk it? Just keep down your path. You're doing really well. Because oh, yeah. that's in his twenties that has cardiac sarcoidosis. That's not going to make it. He keeps telling me he's doing very poorly and the meds are not helping him. Ooh. I'm not sure why I didn't, I, again, I don't think he can tell me everything, but um, he's just said, you're, he keeps reiterating how lucky I am because there's so many people that really struggle. Yeah. Yep. Well, you're out there running, you're running, uh, you know, hundred miles a month. When I was a runner, that was my, that was my goal every month was to run a hundred miles. Uh, and then when I was training, I would run more than that. Um, so I, I ran, I ran 10 marathons. Um, but my legs don't function anymore because of the damage of my spinal cord. So my brain doesn't talk to my legs and they just, I'm just like, if you ever watch me run, you'd think I had cramps in both my legs. It's just really awkward. Um, but I can ride a bike cause the pedals make, you know, determine the motion and there's plenty of strength in my legs. It's just, you know, just can't run. The signal doesn't get there. Yeah. yeah. Signal doesn't get, and I'm just not, I've lost that agility, which stinks yeah. because I, you know, I used to love to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. That is that like a permanent damage because you still have, or is it because you still have, and it's impeding the signal? No, it's permanent damage on the spinal cord. It's, I think it's tied to the damage that the, um, that the granuloma did. And then also I think they, they probably nicked my spinal cord during the biopsy. Oh, boy. Uh, but the, you know, the doctor said that, that part of my spinal cord was just mush anyway. So, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know whether to hold him accountable or not. I don't, I don't yeah. worry about it too much, but. Cause yours is pretty rare. Cause I, I, I was told lungs are predominantly the most common. That's right. Skin and lungs. I've heard. Yeah. And I, I think that there's a comedian from Chicago, Bernie Mac that died of cardiac sarcoidosis. Mm -hmm. Not cardiac, I'm sorry, lung pulmonary sarcoidosis. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, who else was the funny thing was my, when my, my regular general, practitioner doctor is like i asked him i said how come you know i would never be tested for this and again i don't know all the numbers but he was saying your demographic isn't typically the people who get sarcoidosis he's saying it's predominantly i think females in their 20s that are african-american african-american yep and i'm i'm caucasian in my 40s and a male so they're like we would never test you for that but yep. maybe they need to change their their demographics it could be anybody right well, that's what we're trying to do is is make doctors more aware and to be thinking sarcoidosis sooner because everybody has issues being diagnosed because they're just not looking for it. There's 200,000 people total in the United States who have it, uh, give or take. Yeah. And, and, and cardiac and neurosarcoidosis are among the rarer forms. So it's just not something that they would go looking for first. Right. And again, that's like, I was an advocate for myself and I found it, thankfully. Yep. And that was such an interesting case. I, I got a lot of good stories that came out of this, but my my cardiologist had a resident with him 
that had been attending to me throughout all, all this. And they actually used my case without my name as their like research paper to graduate. Wow. And they thought it was so unique. And every, and th this is another unique thing. Every doctor I saw asked me, this is really bizarre, but do you, do you have a picture or can I see that sample of your skin sarcoidosis? Cause none of these, these doctors learn about it in school, but they've never seen it. Up uh -huh. close. And they, it's kind of a weird thing, but the doctors want to see what it looks like. Sure. And I, I see your biopsy. I'm like, I, I have no idea where that went, but so it's resides somewhere. Um, right. But it was, they're all fascinated by it because they've never seen it, which is not comforting because you hope what you have, they know what to do with. And my, in my case, people have never, they've never dealt with this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, look, thanks for sharing your story here on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. I, I wish you the best and, and I hope you get out there and, and uh, log a few more miles, maybe another marathon someday. Who knows? I will. Hopefully I can run one for, for sarcoidosis. I know they seem to do them once a year to raise money and awareness. They do. They do. Maybe I'll do it in Chicago and try to raise awareness here. Oh, that'd be awesome. Well, if you do, uh, let me know and we'll have you back on the podcast. Uh, you don't have to do the, you know, the full guest, but uh, I've got another guy, Royce, uh, who raised some money bike riding last year. And if, and if you do some fundraising, let me know. We'll get you back on here and, and you can let people know what you're doing and they can contribute to your cause. Wonderful. I appreciate it. Great. All right. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. Have a great day. I feel like a zombie just feeding at stumbling. I want to thank Mark for joining me on the podcast and for uh, for sharing his sarcoidosis story. And on the day that he joined me, um, he, he has four kids, and it happened to be, uh, I think it was President's Day, so they were home from school, and he had to carve out some time to share that story um, because uh, he, he, he was on dad duty for sure. But he found a way to do it, and I very much appreciate that. And, you know, and once again, I just have to marvel at the fact that um, once again, out of the blue, uh, and Mark was recommended to me by uh, one of the folks at FSR, um, out of the blue, here comes a Sark patient who is uh, an endurance person, right? He's, he's a marathon runner. He was a runner in high school and college. I mean, he's been a runner his whole life, and... Uh, but, you know, marathon marathoners push themselves. Uh, I know that from personal experience. And Mark's run seven marathons. And just once again, there it is, uh, somebody who really likes to be out there pushing themselves, and they develop sarcoidosis. I'm not saying there's a link. It just seems funny how often that comes up. Okay? Uh, the official Sark Fighter song, and thanks again to, uh, to Mark for joining me. The official Sark Fighter song is Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards. Mark's story, the story behind the lyrics, is episode 12. I release the Sark Fighter podcast every other Monday. As I'm speaking today, my trusty dog, Dougal, my boxer, is curled up in the chair in my office. And my new puppy, Shandy, also from the SPCA, is curled up on her bed at my feet. So life just couldn't get any better. And the backstory to the founding 
of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is in episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson. Don't forget to follow me on social media, the Sark Fighter uh, or Sark Fighter. Just Google that. It doesn't come up very often. Uh, Facebook, Instagram. I'm on Peloton as Sark Fighter. And my cycling blog called Carl and the Cyclist has a section called Cycling with Sarcoidosis. Also, if you are new here and just trying to figure out what Sark is, go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. It's kind of like a a primer, uh, Sarcoidosis 101, if you will. And then my sad story is episode one. If you'd like to let me know what you think of the podcast or appear on the podcast, please send me an email. It's in the show notes, carlinagency at gmail.com. And until next time, keep fighting. Trying to keep up the pace Dead men walking, counting